Welcome to episode 511 with my guest, Monica Padman. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Place to talk about all the bullshit. All the bullshit rattling around our heads. I am not a therapist. Uh, this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. And that should be obvious after about two minutes into the podcast. Um, one note before we get to the interview with Monica, uh, she mentions uh, Kristen uh, a couple of times. And for those of you that don't know Dak Shepard, her co-host of uh, Armchair Expert, uh, Kristen is Kristen Bell, uh, Dax's wife. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Corroded Lines. And about her anorexia, she writes, the only thing that can stop the self-loathing is being the thinnest person in the room. Snapshot from her life about having borderline personality disorder. No matter how good the day before was, every morning, walking into work, convinced everyone hates you, searching faces for evidence of acceptance or annoyance. The way you act, ensuring that people will exclude you because you act standoffish and strange. The feeling that every time you are left out or forgotten, it's on purpose. Knowing your thoughts are deluded doesn't stop them from hurting. Feeling the euphoric, giddy rush of connecting with a possible friend. Then distancing yourself because you know your strong emotions will push them away. And the abandonment, yet again, is too much to bear. I am so alone. Wow, that is one of the... Hear my stomach. That is one of the most eloquent descriptions of borderline personality disorder that uh, that I have ever ever read. Thank you for that. This is also struggle in a sentence filled out by Beth and about her anxiety. She writes, "It starts as I get a feeling that somebody is grabbing onto the back of my head. Then I get shivers into my stomach that turn into a knot. My legs start buzzing and my thoughts won't stop." Thank you for that. The buzzing legs, by the way, might mean that you left your vibrator in. But either way, God bless you. <laughs> what an awkward way to wrap that one up. This is an email I got from uh, a guy who calls himself Dustin. And uh, he writes, I'd love to know your opinion regarding SSRIs. Uh, I was on them, uh, Paxil and then escitalopram for about 14 years starting when I was 20. I'm now 35 and went off them in January of last year. This past year has been by far the darkest, most anxiety-ridden period of my life and has uprooted everything, including my job and my house. I have never been more close to the idea of self-harm, but I'm writing it out in hopes that I can one day get better, even many years down the road, and I definitely feel like I was a better person on them much more functional, albeit occasionally emotionally numb. I would be incredibly grateful if you were able to share any personal opinions regarding your experience. I've gone down the rabbit hole of feeling that long-term use can cause awful damage and that the pharmaceutical companies have hidden trial results that didn't fit their agenda. I think I'm also afraid of them somehow subconsciously muting one's best creative potential. Such a great question, Dustin, and uh, I, I, I wrote him back. 
and said, you know, each person's experience with meds is a little different and there's no single piece uh, of advice that applies to everyone. But for me, I need meds. The podcast was actually born by me stubbornly going off my meds despite my shrink strongly advising against it and months later slipping into a suicidal depression that took me to a really dark place where I didn't want to be alive anymore. And it was then that I realized it was the depression and not reality, and I promptly went back on them and felt better in no time. I thought if someone who has had as much experience with them as I had, 11 years at that point, goes to a therapist, sees a shrink, and believes depression and anxiety are real things, not just, quote, bad attitudes, then imagine the person who has none of those. They're fucked. I should do a podcast where we talk about all the ways mental illness comes at uh, at us. So how's that for an answer? Uh, I would be dead and there would be no podcast. Yes, meds can have side effects, but what are the side effects of having untreated mental illness? That's the question. And I, I also feel that meds should be the last house on the, on the block. I think... You know, we should try therapy and, you know, exercise and healthy diet and all all that other stuff. And I agree with him. I'm worried that there's long-term side effects. And I'm worried that the, the ph- I do not trust the pharmace- pharmaceutical companies. So I get where you're coming from, Dustin, but that's that's my experience with them. Uh, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, fucked by, fucked filled out by a woman who calls herself fuck you uterus Um, and she writes uh, about her anxiety once at work it got down to 55 degrees and I didn't notice because being cold feels a lot like being anxious and then a snapshot from her life it's been three months since my period started and refused to end and doubling up on my birth control hasn't helped and I'm torn between crawling under my desk at work and crying murdering my co-workers, taking my uterus behind the shed and shooting it, or strapping said uterus to a rocket and shooting it directly into the sun. Burn, you motherfucker, burn. Wow, that sounds fucking intense. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, my God. That sounds awful. One of our sponsors for today is the online therapy provider, uh, BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com. If you're interested in trying online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include this slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. They are licensed in all 50 states. They they have a huge variety of counselors, a lot of times counselors that specialize in stuff that you can't find locally. And uh, I'm just a, a big, big fan of them. I've been using them for a couple of years. So if you uh, are interested, again, go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire. If they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, if that is your thing. And then this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, Weekends Make Me Sad. She writes, I'm a college student living at home with my parents, which sucks about as much as you would expect it to. I've not been able to negotiate 
renegotiate boundaries with them so that we can have an adult-to-adult relationship instead of parent-child. Living at home is isolating, and I'm socially anxious at the best of times, so making friends in college has been a major challenge. I also hate my major, which my mother picked for me based on her fear of me not being able to get a job unless I study something, quote, practical. My parents have leveraged my need for their money to pay for graduate school to control me for the past three years. As a result of all this fuckery, I have little sense of meaning in my life. Enter depression. My parents helped put me back in therapy to learn social skills, but they do not want to hear about the depression. Instead, they consistently undercut the progress I'm making in therapy. My mother uses her status as a mental health professional as a soapbox to stand on while yelling that my feelings are incorrect. My father offers some variation on life sucks and suggests I read Holocaust survivor memoirs. Want to know how sad my life is? I had tried this before he suggested it. I think my parents think that I can use CBD Uh, to completely change how I'm feeling without changing my lifestyle, which is what got me sick in the first place. I'm terrified that if I share my feelings and or fail to perform perfectly in school and at home, my parents will kick me out of the house and I will be homeless and on the hook for grad school. Therapy is one of my only outlets where I can express how I'm feeling without fear, although I'm scared my parents will stop paying for it. After a scary, depressive episode where I let emails pile up in the thousands and fell behind in school, I'm getting back on track. Today, I finally got my shit together enough to check my email. As I'm clicking through, a message from my mother pops up. She sent me a link to an article on how to quit antidepressants. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world, everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry we need to be with people i grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies maybe listen thanks for coming in (laughs) i'm here with monica padman who some of you may know as a podcaster she uh, co-hosts armchair expert with dex Dax Shepard. <laughs> and uh, you also did a 10-part series called Monica and Jess Love Boys. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about today is your struggles with, I guess you would say, intimacy with uh, partnering. Yeah. Um, be- before we get to that, uh, one of the things I like to do when I hear somebody's story is kind of start from the beginning hear what the environment was like that that they grew up in. You grew up in Georgia, your first generation Indian American. Your parents were born in India, but they lived here for have lived here for a long time. Yes. Yeah. My mom grew up in Savannah, Georgia when she, they moved when she was six. Um so she fully grew up there. And then my dad came after college for graduate school. And he's been here, you know, forty years or so. So uh 
Yeah. One and a half. I always feel weird saying first generation because especially because my mom like fully grew up here, but I think it still counts. It's the big question. Yeah. Uh, Was there pressure on your mom to marry within the Indian culture or your father? Yes, I believe. Well, if I'm being fair to my grandparents, I don't know that it was pressure so much as just expectation. You know, I don't think my mom, definitely not my dad, they they weren't like bucking the system or trying to buck the system. You know, they weren't, especially my mom. She's such a uh, rule follower. I think I get a lot of that from her. Um, And she she was never going to be like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) You know, she was just going to sort of go along with what was expected of her. So, um, yeah, I don't know that I would say pressure as much as just like, yeah, this is what we, this is what we do. So what, what was the environment like for you growing up, uh, especially as a, a person of Indian descent growing up in Georgia? So it's so tricky. I have found, especially with Monica and Jess, you know, I spent th- that podcast was such a surprise for me and Jess. Cause you know, we started off doing it as like a fun little dating show with challenges. And then it, it became very quickly, extremely vulnerable. And uh, we really went deep into our past and our issues. And it ended up being so much more fulfilling than we ever could have thought. But it's funny because I had a few friends from home call me during that process. And they're like, oh my, I, uh, like they felt, I think almost a little betrayed or something like I didn't know you were feeling like that and 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 then I felt really guilty I was like well I also was having a wonderful beautiful happy childhood and and adolescence it just you know there were these deep-seated issues of feeling different and desperately wanting to not and really wanting to assimilate and and not being very good at seeing the reality around me, you know, like we were not that different, you know, like my parents are very Americanized and they, um, it, it wasn't like I had that strong of a reason to feel like I was super on the outside. I was a cheerleader. I, I you know, I did all these things. But I just knew like, oh, there's something about me that is different and everyone can see it. I can't hide it. It's literally my face and my skin. (laughs) Were there moments that have stuck with you where people said things or that really exemplified the, the feeling of looking or feeling different? Yeah, I mean, you know, like little teasing things, just little remarks here and there that that stung. I was just saying the other day, I was talking to my friend and um, she, we were talking about our shoe size and she was like, yeah, I have big feet for like than the standard woman. And I was like, they look totally small and normal. And she was like, yeah, well, one time someone said I had elephant feet and I've never forgotten it. And I was like, yeah, I can relate. Like one time some boy like made a comment about having hairy arms or being like a werewolf because of that. And I was like, okay, never forgetting that for the rest of my life. And, (laughs) you know, just like little things like that. And, um, but also a lot of it did have to do with dating. 
like I felt that I could not date like no I felt like no one wanted to date me um because of that and you know there the, the classic example that I talk about on the pod, our podcast all the time is um you know there was a kid in I think it was sixth grade and we were in the pool and he liked me and I liked him and my friend said why don't you ask her to be your girlfriend he said well I can't her parents work at Dairy Queen because there was this like stereotype that Indians owned or ran the Dairy Queen and um and I was like oh it was just the first real moment where I was like oh this is a problem this is going to get in my way this isn't good was he imagining that that was the case or was that the case that your parents worked at Dairy Queen. They did not work at Dairy Queen. Okay. <laughs> they did not work at Dairy Queen. He was, he was making an. I don't think he was making an assumption. I think he was just making a mean joke. I think he was just saying, I like, you. I can't date her. Like, she's Indian, is what it meant. And um, yeah, and I was like, uh oh, <laughs> this is going to be an uphill battle. That had to have really gotten under your skin. It it. I think the saddest part of it now as an adult looking back is I wasn't like mad at him. Right. I wasn't thinking, Oh, he's crazy for saying that. Or my parents don't work at Dairy Queen. What is he thinking? Like I should have, those should have been the, the real natural thoughts, but I just, it got, I got very internal about it. And I was like, Oh no, people think this and it's not even true. And how, how am I ever going to have a boyfriend if this is such a big hurdle? Like I can't overcome. So I really made it about myself. Like something was wrong with me. And yeah. Did you fantasize about a different life or looking different? Oh yeah. Oh, talk about that. Talk about some of the the fantasies that you had. Yeah. I had, every fantasy to be different, to, to live in a different house, to like nothing was right in, in my head about my existence. Like I wanted to look different. I wanted, you know, the, when I was um, younger than that, I think I must've been in like fifth grade or something. I remember, and I'm, I'm very very short. I'm five feet tall, but I do have cut for my body. I have long legs for my body. And we were on the playground and there was this popular girl and, you know, popular white girl. She, and, and I like looked at her body and I was like, I need to look like her. I I wish I looked like her. And she had short legs. And I went home and I said to my mom, I wish I had short legs. And my mom was like, what are you saying? Like everyone wants long legs. And, and she, you know, maybe in that moment, I probably maybe could have used a little bit, a little bit more comforting instead of just like, you're crazy. But she also was just like, what? Like she couldn't really wrap her head around the fact that I was saying something like that. But yeah, it started, it's like even from that trivial of a thing of like, I want shorter legs so I can look like her. I want, oh, hair. Hair was a huge thing. Like my hair was so thick and um, I wanted it to be thin. And again, my mom's like, you don't understand what people want. (laughs) You don't understand. But you know, you always want what you can't have. I know that 
as a, just general humans. But I think for me, there was this added layer of like, I just don't look like everyone and I want to, I want to, and I wanted a boyfriend and I just wanted to be like everyone else. Yeah. I mean, all I, I mean, truly it's funny that you say like fantasize. All I did was fantasize. I mean, I pretty much lived in a fantasy my whole life. I have like some real fantasy, um, mental health stuff, uh, definitely in like kind of a love addict way, mm-hmm. which has some irony because I don't really date, but that, you know, it's just projecting these fantasies about other people and which always is, putting someone on a, it's yeah. Which is one of the hallmarks of, of love, love addiction. addiction. It's a, you know, they're, they're both sides of the same coin, the love addiction and the love obsession and yes. uh, love avoidance. Uh, have you read uh, Pia Melody's book, Facing Love Addiction? No, I haven't. I should. Oh, you should. Yeah, it's yeah. considered the Bible of, oh, it of is. love addiction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the term love addiction, as you know, is a bit of a misnomer because true love can't be obsessive. True, yeah. true love is mature and there's yeah. not a high to it. And it involves a lot of ugly, uncomfortable discussions. And totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah I, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, I pretty much lived in this bubble. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I also lived my life and it was great, but I, I, there was always this looming fantasy over me that, well, one day I'll have this or one day. And, you know, the irony is like, I did get some of that stuff. You know, I wanted to be an actress and I wanted to live in Los Angeles and I wanted to do all these things. And it also motivated me in a big way to kind of pursue a lot of things that maybe I wouldn't if I didn't feel like I was trying to escape my, my body, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, what were some of the futuristic fantasies that you had or, or possibly still have about what is going to bring the feelings that you're searching for? Actually, what are those feelings that, that will bring you peace or comfort in your own skin? Well, I've gotten so much better at it now, thank God, um, through therapy, through uh, our podcast, uh, through Monica and Jess, all of it. You know, I've learned so much about myself and I, I know that peace only comes in, peace is intrinsic and it's not ex- extrinsic and I can't find it. I can't make enough money to feel it. I can't uh, be su- so successful that I'll feel it. You know, I know that it's a homeostasis and a contentment and that I can only bring that to myself. So I've gotten much better about that over time, but, but for a long time, yeah, it was success professional success um recognition definitely recognition i i still really struggle with recognition like i really feel that i need credit if i do something or if um for work and i i you know i i struggle a lot with value like i need to feel valued um and yeah i think it all stems from a sort of that same, that same early seed of like wanting to be 
accepted and put on a pedestal or, you know, like I wanted to be the popular girl with the short legs. So I'm like still <laughs> trying to, to do that in some way, but I have gotten a lot, a lot better at, at figuring out what it is that like really makes me happy, which really ultimately is just like community, just like being around people who fill me up and are kind and show grace and, you know, for who you are, see, yeah. see your authenticity and exactly and love it. You know, yeah. for, me, for me, that was the, one of the biggest breakthroughs in um, being more comfortable in my own skin was people seeing me at my worst and yes. and loving me. I used to think that I had to be special to be loved. That that attention would be based on being impressive. And yeah. that that would make me safe when in reality, it's like, well, when you're trying to distance yourself from the pack by being special, of course, you're going to feel alone because you're separating yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And special is such a, a perfect word. I, I definitely felt that I wanted to be special and I, because I didn't feel like I was and I wanted everyone else to tell me I was so that I could start feeling it. And yeah, then the irony is once you let go of that, you do feel special. <laughs> you do feel like, oh, I'm unique and I have my own feelings. They're special in the fact that they're mine right. and nobody else's. And so, uh, yeah. And the, and and, and the fear that if we are one of many, we won't be seen when in reality, that's when we're seen the most, because I think the playing field is leveled and we yeah. feel that sense of community because yeah. there's, there's no hierarchy, at least in support groups. That's, that's what I found, but I'm sorry, I cut your thought. No, off. no, it's okay. I, I, I think, you know, this industry acting and entertainment is, uh, tricky. I think it's tricky for everyone because you, you, you're auditioning, you're against other people, you're quote competing, you know, it takes a while to understand that you're not competing because you're sitting in a room with a bunch of other people and you, and there's right. one job and it is easy to be like, I have to be special. I have to stand out. Like they didn't like me. They didn't pick me. No one picks me. You know, this is the spiral. Um, and it takes a while to, to really see, understand that like, no, you just do you and it's gonna, it's gonna fit or it's not going to fit, but all you can do is be you don't try right. to be her. Don't try to be, you know, and, um, but, it, but, it, but, you know, this industry I think can be a slippery slope for some of these feelings of needing to be perfect, needing to be special, needing to be shiny. I'm I'm going to take a wild guess that uh, most of the jobs you've been rejected for are because your legs are too long. Yeah, I would say so. I think you're exactly right. Yep, yep, yep. I got to quit. <laughs> I hope nobody takes that seriously. Um, <laughs> so let's let's talk about the the struggles to find a a partner, what have you learned? Was there anything that you gleaned doing that 10 part series mm -hmm. uh, where you kind of went deep and you guys gave yourself challenges in dating? Yeah, there were a lot of lessons learned through that process. And one big one for me 
was there was a challenge where I had to give somebody my phone number in person. And I was terrified to do that. It sounded impossible to do. And you were to initiate it or you were to do it when they asked for your number? I was to initiate. I was to give someone my phone number, ostensibly a stranger, I guess. Um, and we, we recorded that, I think, before maybe Thanksgiving. Normally, there were every couple weeks that we, you know, we had like two weeks in between. But this time we had like a month in, in to, for me to complete this. And I'm going to assume that you weren't allowed to tell them this is a challenge. Uh, and exactly, exactly. Well, because that would be such a cop out. Like I need to get I and it wasn't like just give any old person your phone number. It was, you know, who's interesting to you if you if and if there is like and not just and if there is find someone that is don't don't like just dismiss a person because of X, Y or Z, because that's the easy thing to do. Find someone who piques your interest and give them your phone number. So. I had a long time to complete this. And then I, of course, waited till the last day. And I told Jess, I was like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I, we're going to have to figure out something like a penalty. We're going to have to figure out something when we record tomorrow because I didn't do it. And he was like, all right. <laughs> and then I um, went to a restaurant and there was a guy there who I had chatted with before, who I, who I thought was really cute and uh, really nice. And, um, and then he was my waiter that day. And I was like, this is a sign. <laughs> so I, I gave him my phone number. I think I said like, if, well, we chatted, we just had like some normal banter. And then I said, you know, if you ever want to take a walk or get a drink, like I'd love to do that. And he was like, yeah, I would love that. And I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll leave you my phone number. So it, what did you it, feel in your body and your brain at, in that moment? So that was the big takeaway. You know, I liked him and I was excited for him to possibly call or text but I realized like, this isn't even about him. This isn't about, is he going to call? And that's what my fears are. Of course, like I'm going to give someone my phone number and then they're not going to call or they're going to be like, Ooh, why'd she give me, I don't want this. Like, you know, those are the, the fears. But as soon as I did it, I was like, Oh, this is not about him. This is about me. This is about me deciding like, I like you. Like I'm, I'm going to put myself out there and I can, and it doesn't feel so weighty. I didn't, I didn't experience the thing I thought I was going to experience. And it felt really good. It was like, Oh, I can, I, I can do it. And yeah, it just, it, it was a really nice um, turning point for me where I was like, okay, you know, not, not everything is doomed. Not everything is going to be, uh, but her parents work at Dairy Queen, <laughs> you know, so is <laughs> that everything's going to end in that. And so it was really nice. Also for that same challenge, I will say a huge takeaway I had was I realized that I have just had my light turned off. 
you know, like mm-hmm. I was walking around the world with my light off and not, and clo- and just like closed minded. Like I was not looking for people actively. And this challenge made me, I had to, cause I had to find a person. So, I, so once I got the challenge, I started look literally turning the light on and looking and saying, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And I realized I was like, I don't do that. I don't do that in life. I don't walk around saying like, who could it be? I just have that all shut down. And so it was really informative of like, that's a different muscle. Uh, and, and that's what it feels like. And you got to do that every day. So I learned so, I mean, I, I learned so much. We had the most amazing experts on the show. We had Esther Perel, we had Alex Katahakis, you know, we had Dr. Drew. It was just, we, we were really, it was an embarrassment of riches of people telling us, you know, what our issues were. <laughs> and it was good. And in, in a nutshell, what were the, the issues you had? Your light turned off. Yeah. Um, obviously, you were trying to avoid experiencing negative feelings. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it, the irony is, you know, we, we did the podcast because Jess and I are complete opposites. Um, you know, I don't date. He dates multiple guys a week. You know, he, uh, yeah, we're just like on paper coming from two different directions, but really it's the exact same thing underneath. We're just totally insecure and afraid of commitment and afraid of getting shut down. And, um, we both have grown up feeling on the outside, Jess is gay. And it's, it's a, self-protective mechanism and we had Esther on she really wrapped it up really nicely that she was like you have a goblin on your shoulder and it's been there to protect you you needed him at some point and now you can tell the goblin thank you thank you for your service I don't need you anymore I don't when someone comes up and you know asked to buy me a drink the goblin is like don't do it shut it you know say no don't be open to this and the goblin really served you well and you don't need him anymore you can thank him and say goodbye and i was like yeah i just have this really protective nature that i have to start like unstacking the bricks what are some of the things that the goblin would tell you when you would start a relationship with somebody? I would imagine that one of the ways that it talks to you is it picks people apart uh, so that you don't get closer to them. Yeah. Or, or am I putting words in your mouth? No, no, you're, you're not. There's, there's a part of that, but the other big pattern I have and I've always had is whenever someone started to like me, it seemed, even people who I had fantasized about, who I put on that pedestal, actually, especially those people, if they started to like me, then I was, then I thought, oh, there's something way wrong with this person. If they like me, which nobody 
does and nobody's supposed to, that means there's something wrong with them. So I'm no longer attracted to them because they're attracted to me. And it is this crazy cycle. Yeah. Uh, Groucho Marx uh, yes. used to, okay, you know it. Yeah. I would yes. never want to belong to a country club that would have someone like me as a member. Exactly. I, I think people said that uh, all of the experts quoted that, yes. <laughs> that yeah, to okay. me. It was a very, yeah. And that's exactly what it was. And so, so, so that would happen if people started to like me. So I would really like, I, I, I've never been in a serious relationship ever. And that's part of it. Like I would just never let it go there because I'd be like, there's something wrong with this person. Like they're interested in me and I don't know what their issue is yet, but they have one. And so I'm done. Um, and maybe a little bit of picking people apart, but I don't think, I think it's more of like a self loathing mm-hmm. that turns into like, ugh, I don't know. Did you experience, uh, as and only talk about this if you're comfortable talking about it, but as a, as a child, did you experience any kind of uh, boundary violation where the, the world didn't feel safe to you, where you didn't feel autonomous over your body, or you felt like you had to be someone's emotional caretaker? Because those are two of the biggest things that trigger a a fear of intimacy in people as adults. I know. It's so interesting. I've been trying to figure this out for a long time because I don't, and I'm in therapy and we talk about it and I don't know where this really deeply comes from because to my knowledge, no, I did not experience either of those things. I did not have to be the parent, you know, I I did not have, and I was not, um, I never experienced any physical trauma. Um, and so, this is I mean, not to minimize what happened to you oh, in, I, in yeah. grade school and feeling different and all that. I just um, sometimes yeah. really want to know the depth of someone's of pain and, and, and their experience. I have a real abandonment issue. And I do, again, I don't really know why. My parents have, are, are wonderful and were there and are still together. You know, um, my, my mother has experienced some abandonment trauma in her life. And there is, you know, I'm like that, that has potentially passed down. Um, but that issue, the abandonment issue, I think has served this like, uh, unsafe, this sense that I'm always unsafe and that I have to kind of, adjust to people so that they won't discard me. Um, and I got really good at that. You know, I got really good at like being like, who do you need me to be right oh, now? And God. I'll be that. So, so relate to that. No, yeah. it's so hard to find a sense of self when you don't know what it is that you want. You feel like you have to play a role to survive. Otherwise you'll be, you'll be cast aside or you won't be special. Yeah. That's a, that's a really hard one. It's so strange because I still have that. Not to the, not to the same extent where I'll uh, manipulate or, or I wouldn't say manipulate, but that I'll like 
acquiesce to, to whatever people need me to be. I'm actually, I kind of think I've swung in the opposite direction now because I've lived that life for so long. And I was like, I'm done doing that. <laughs> I'm done doing that. I have enough confidence in myself now to not, but I still have a very deep, um, seated issue with feeling replaceable and it comes up all the time and you know it comes up in work a lot it comes up in you know my relationship with Kristen and Dax a lot and um and it's sort of that same thing it's this abandonment thing like I'm afraid that at any moment I'm just going to be like let go and it, it, yeah, it, it, I, I'm working on it. Oh, and then, so I remember one, you know, one of these issues had come up and I was talking to Dax about it and he was like, has anyone you've trusted or loved ever abandoned you? And I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't think so. So it's very, it's, it's confusing. I really don't know why. And I wish I did, because I think that would provide me some answers. Um, It's just more work I got to do. But I, I, yeah, that's a, you know, I mean, in a way, you putting yourself out there as a, as a kid um, and being, you know, told that you're a werewolf and, yeah. you know, other that your parents uh, don't have a good enough job. I mean, that that is a form of abandonment just because it's your peers. Um, yeah. But, yeah. They, you know, it, it, for many of us growing up, it's so important for us to feel accepted by our peers. Yes. I remember one one time in sixth grade, I had a crush on this girl. And so I did the, you know, the thing where you ask your friend to ask if she'd be interested in going out with you. And I was at the end of the hallway, you know, uh, kind of eavesdropping. And she was with a bunch of her friends and just out loud, like in a really sarcastic voice. She goes, oh, my God, you guys, Paul Gilmartin wants to go out with me. And they all laugh. Oh, oh. I just remember oh. feeling just like somebody had taken a blowtorch to my face. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it's one thing to be like, oh, kids are kids. But that, that those those moments are really hard to let go of. Yeah. Yeah. It it it, it affects you on some level, at least for a while. Yeah. Uh, talk about the catastrophizing part of your brain, uh, especially outside of the, the issue of dating and, and finding a partner. Yeah, I do a lot of spiraling out. Um, Any example you can think of would, would be great because it's it, when we have to speak or write are catastrophizing to me it it's such a way of busting it of just showing how ridiculous it is definitely yeah i i think i always um yeah i i always am sort of looking for the worst case scenario it's 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 extra complicated because it's also served me so you know, I, I work for Kristen and I help manage her uh, brand. And 
So I'm always looking for the loophole that could turn into this, that could turn into this. And that's, that's helpful for my job. So there is an element that my, I'm kind of trained and I've used it, the good parts, I guess, for good. But, you know, I'll just get in my head that it's, a, it's just very, it's a very OCD, really. I just like get in my head that something's going to happen and, and I don't really have compulsions, but I definitely have obsessions and they're very hard for me to let go of. They're all pretty serious, you know, like I always think they're not completely made up. Like the obsession is born out of something real, like. So is it like you take a fact that might be minor and you extrapolate it into something larger? Yeah, probably. Yes, I would say that. Or like, I, you know, a friend that I know struggles with something is texting me weirdly. I will really spiral out about that. Like something's wrong. Something's definitely wrong. You know, even when they're telling me, no, it's fine. Things like that. And it's, it's hard. I was just talking about this on our podcast. You know, sometimes those feelings are validated. You know, sometimes I'll spiral about something and turns out I was right. Right. I mean, I assume it's okay to talk about this because you guys talked about it publicly on an episode, but Dax relapsed and all along you had, or at least for a while, you had been saying, are you okay? And Mm -hmm. you seem like you're acting weird. Are you sure you're not taking anything? And he was so afraid to come forward for fear of being abandoned or ostracized um, that, that he wasn't telling the truth. Yeah. For a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a very specific example of many spirals that I would have where I was like, I know it. I know in my, in my head, I mean, I had no proof. So that was also the thing. It's like, I, I couldn't be like, well, I know for sure. So you might as well just tell me, you know, I, I couldn't do that. I didn't. Um, so I would just have these feelings that were really strong and I um, would really spiral out about them. You know, I'd wake up in the morning and be like needing confirmation that he was okay, that he, you know, and, and um, I really for a while tried to talk myself out of that. I was like, this is really not healthy for me. And I did for kind of like, I was able to step back for a bit, but I always, I just always had this nagging feeling about it anyway. So yes. So this is an example of, of a time where this, this, uh, intuition, I guess you could say was validated. And then I really have to, um, police myself because then I started to think, Oh my God, I'm like, you know, predicting that I'm going to go down this, whole where every time I think something's wrong, not just with him, with anybody mm-hmm. that I'm right. Like that. I'm like, I'm definitely right because I was right before. And that's not true or fair. You know, I have a lot of hypochondria, which is in that same realm of um, things we can't control that we think we if control. we obsess about it enough, some kind of answer is going to come to us that will bring exactly. us peace and give us control. 
You know, it's so interesting. I, I really was a pretty intense hypochondriac. Not so intense that I would like go to the doctor for every little thing. I never went to the doctor. I just was like, well, I'm pretty sure, you know, any day now I'm going to have an aneurysm. You know, I just like, I just, you know, had all these crazy thoughts. But then at the beginning of this year, I was diagnosed with epilepsy. I had two seizures and my hypochondria is maybe people, maybe people close to me would disagree, but I think pretty much gone (laughs) because something real happened. And I, I was really, it's so like right after it happened, days after went to my therapist, you know, I was like, we got to nip this in the bud. I have, you know, she, she knows me and she knows about my anxiety and she's like, yes, like you're going to feel really out of control. Cause you are, you know, you are, you already struggle with control. And she, but what she also said, which I thought was so beautiful and true is she, she said, you're going to feel out of control because you are, and we all are we all are out of control every day and our brain doesn't let us remember that our brain has boundaries so that we don't feel like at any moment something horrible is going to happen to us but the truth is at any moment something could happen to us and and i was like yeah this isn't new this isn't right. like you know and it felt really powerful and and also because then I got a medication and all you know I kind of was like well yeah maybe some things might happen and I'll probably be able to deal with them and that'll be fine and I think it was almost this like lack of anything having happened that was causing this like well and well eventually something's definitely going to happen to me so when 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 you know and then and then it it did and so it was I guess I kind of was like okay (laughs) there it is yeah, I, I think sometimes when we imagine the worst case scenario, we think that it means that our life will be over and we'll have to commit suicide. Yes. And for me, especially lately with all the turmoil that's going on in the world, is I, I, I think to myself, okay, maybe the world, maybe the, the higher power or whatever it is doesn't control everything. Maybe... Yeah. Maybe there is a certain amount of chaos or darkness in the world, but what that benevolent force is, is a place that I can go to during the chaos for comfort, you know, almost like a where's Waldo, but Waldo is love. Yeah. I mean, this year for everyone has just brought everything to the surface. I think you can't avoid your emotions and that's really hard Oh my God, it's so hard. It's hard to be awake. It is a hard time to be out of bed. It really, really is. But I hope, you know, I do have some optimism that because you can't run from it, that hopefully people are coming to terms with things they needed to to come to terms with. And like, hopefully uh, things will be a little different in come January, I hope, uh, for for all of us, and we can move forward a little bit with a cleaner slate. It's it's crazy. You know, when I talked to my psychiatrist, he was like, every single one of my clients, 
every single one <laughs> has come to me this year and has been like, I need an adjustment. I need, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just where we are. It's good. It's good to remember that everyone is feeling it. The, the debates are tonight and yes. I cannot watch them. Yeah. I, I cannot watch them. Um, and I feel like a so bad sad. citizen. How, how mm-hmm. are you uh, about watching the news and taking things um, in? I'm going to watch the debates tonight. I have, I do not take in much news. I don't have cable. I think that's been really helpful. Um, I will check it on my phone, you know, every now and then, but I'm not addicted to the news. I am not, um, on Twitter, which I think is helpful. Really helpful. Yes. I think that's really been good for me. You know, I grew up in a house, like my parents have the news on the, in the background all day. They are news junkies. Um, it's almost just like, uh, you know, it's just part of my childhood, just like having that always on. It's always been good. You know, it's, I've always, when I go home for Christmas, I always come back and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm way more knowledgeable than I was two weeks ago. Like I, I and that feels good, but, but you can't overdo it. I've, you know, I just know so many people who drown in it and it has such an impact on their mental health and, and also their ability to be present. Yeah. You know, like they are so clued in to what's on their Twitter feed that they're not paying attention to the people in front of them. And like, I think that's where the scales tip mm-hmm. and you can't, you can't let, you know, I do think it's really important to be informed and there is so much going And to on. vote, you know, obviously. And you have to vote. I mean, this is like, you have to. Yeah and be engaged, but you, you also have to be engaged in your life yeah, and, and not and, replace one with the other. And it's very easy to get caught up in self-righteousness and indignation because there's a drug-like adrenalized quality yes. to it that it will never be enough. It's, it's like cocaine, you know, you get high yeah. from it and then you just yeah. have this illusion of of control. And before you know it, you're, you're this empty, angry husk of a person uh, that nobody really wants to deal with because you're talking about the same fucking thing you do every time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it is a literal dopamine hit. So yeah, you, you keep coming back for more and more and more. And, and it's made us so um, it's put us in such divisive camps. Like, you know, almost like football teams where you just decide it's this and I'm on this team and Mm -hmm. no one's listening to each other or even caring about what is being said, what that your team is saying. You've just become um, so polarized. I mean, I know everyone knows that and I hope everyone's watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix uh, because it is so, have you seen it? No, I have not. It it, it is so eye-opening. Yeah. I think it's really probably one of the most important docs for people to watch because we're all susceptible. And I think sometimes we think we're not. And that it's just good to know like how you're being manipulated because we all are. Yeah. And once you have some awareness of it, you can at least 
see some red flags if you need to, or, or at least just be like, I'm not bringing my phone to the beach today or, you know, just like small, small, small things will help. Yeah. I would definitely encourage everyone to watch that. It's really eye opening. Uh, anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think we hit a lot of the stuff. Good yeah, stuff. I, I feel like we, we hit on a lot of good stuff and thank you for talking about s- stuff that's uh, really personal. Of course. Happy to. That's really the, you know, that's our show too, is we're just not interested in like not talking about what's, what, what's really happening and vulnerabilities and honesty is because, you know, everyone's going through it and there, and it's, you want to feel like you're, it's the only real way to help anyone at this point is just through vulnerability, I think. And and I never imagined that it would be energizing, you know. Yeah. Small talk is draining. Small yeah. talk is so draining. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Monica, thanks so much for coming on. We'll put links to all your stuff. And um, thank yeah, you. just thank you. This was lovely. Thank you so much. What a kind soul. Really enjoyed talking to her. We are sponsored today by the mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. I don't know about you guys, but the part of my brain that worries and catastrophizes needs a little break now and then. And I like the muscle that uh, Best Fiends works in my brain. It's kind of spatial, but it's also strategic. And if you never check the game out, it's, uh, it's really fun. When Best Fiends says the fun never ends, that is not an exaggeration. There's 5,000 levels and counting. I'm personally in the mid-100s. So if you're worried that you're going to get to level 3,247 and run out of fun, do not be. There's always another update, whether it's more levels or fun changes to the game based on fan feedback. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best fiends. Uh, if I haven't asked you yet, uh, one of the ways you can help the podcast is actually there's a couple of different ways you can help it financially by going to our website and doing either a one-time donation um, through PayPal or becoming a monthly subscriber through PayPal or Patreon. And Patreon's probably a better choice because you can. Uh, qualify for, uh, I don't know, occasional raffles, sometimes a little uh, little bonus material. And you can help the podcast non-financially by spreading the word about it through social media and uh, going to iTunes, giving it a nice rating, write something nice about it. And probably the biggest way is to subscribe to the podcast. So would love it if you could do any of that stuff. And if you can't, you just want to sit on the couch with your thumb up your ass, right on right on. I spend most of my day with both thumbs up my ass, which a lot of people go, well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you balance? Well, it takes practice. <laughs> this is from the love survey filled out by too anxious to come up with a funny name. And they write, I love living in a country where I don't speak the language. There's hardly anything that gives me such bliss and lessens my anxiety than getting on the tram in the morning, knowing I won't understand shit of what the people around me are saying. What a joy. Oh, I never realized that moving to a country and not speaking a language is just a sweet, sweet isolation move. Kudos. Kudos to you.
This is from the Shame and Secrets survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Ivan. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s. He writes that he was raised in a safe and stable environment, but uh, I would strongly disagree um, based on what he shares. Uh, He's never been sexually abused, and he writes, I'm not sure if I've been emotionally or physically abused. He writes, I'm not sure if it qualifies as emotional abuse, but my mother was prone to tantrums when I was growing up. Her eyes would go wide and unblinking, her face red, and she'd shout and criticize me or my father, slam cupboards or doors before storming off and sulking in silence for a day or two. My father and I frequently walked on eggshells around the house or ineffectually tried to offer help or apologies, usually to be rudely dismissed. She only hit me one time, and by then I was old enough that I was mostly unfazed by it. I think I was 19 at that point. I think it's because of behavior like this and the constant, more subtle criticisms and expectations that I adopted a kind of stoicism since I was a child. I can count the number of times that I've cried on one hand. I don't know why exactly, but I think I internalized that crying or fighting back against my mom only fueled the fire, so I just stopped. I do a lot of the people-pleasing behavior that I saw my dad act out, but I don't really know how I feel, and that's the problem. I don't know how to feel my feelings, only to get overwhelmed by them in the form of anxiety or panic attacks in social situations. Oh boy, Ivan, do I relate to that. And for a lot of us who were raised in homes where there were kind of no emotional boundaries and there was, uh, you know, um, a a sense of not being seen and and your needs not mattering, at least on a consistent basis, going numb is... A lot of times the the option you know going into fantasy in your in your head um i i don't think i really knew what i was feeling probably until i was in my in my 40s and i still struggle with it sometimes you know i hate when somebody asks me how i'm doing because so many times i don't know i can tell you oh my life is functioning but you know am i anxious i know that I'm definitely caught in the shoulds, you know, I should be learning Spanish. I should be in the garage, you know, making furniture, doing something productive. But instead, I'm on my virtual reality goggles shooting zombies, looking looking for that dopamine hit when I hit the score I'm trying to get. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I've had plenty of positive experiences with both of my parents, and I try to share with them as much of myself as I can. They tried their best, and they gave me a pretty safe and comfortable childhood. Boy, it does not sound like it, uh, all things considered. But I also feel pretty alienated from them emotionally. They've both made some strides. They've both done some therapy work, at least as a couple. But they're still the same people, and I don't really feel any desire to open up to them. I don't trust them with my emotions. And I think that is a good indicator uh, of... I think you should listen to that intuition because they do not sound like safe people. And just because parents do nice things for you sometimes doesn't mean that uh, we should tolerate the the other parts. And um, 
It's hard, man. It's complicated. People are fucking complicated. Darkest thoughts, that I'm either worthless or worse than worthless. If you'll indulge me, I've got a story to tell that will drive home what I mean. About three years ago, I got involved with a woman who I met at my job. It wasn't an affair exactly. I was just getting out of a crumbling and not very serious relationship. She was separated working on a divorce. She had three kids and some mysterious health problems. Somehow, though, we got into this whirlwind romance. It was incredibly intense and it moved very quickly. The sex was great, but it was more than that. It felt like a deeply emotional connection, like we, quote, got one another. Um, Then she and her entire family decided to move across the state. I was It was kind of assumed that I would be joining them as soon as I wrapped up school. And that's exactly what I did. I left my friends, my band, my job, the city that I loved, and moved to be with her and the kids. Then, for a lot of reasons, only half of which I fully understand, the relationship just fell apart in a matter of months. I think a lot of it had to do with what I now realize are my issues with codependency, but also her issues with what I now suspect is something more like BPD than bipolar, but also the fact that deep down we just weren't all that compatible. But anyway, I had to leave. I had to leave my job and home and everything again, and this time I was leaving the relationship and the kids behind. Maybe it was only three years, but those years mean a lot when you're talking about kids between the ages of two and nine, and it's tearing me up inside because I can't tell which is worse, that my leaving is ripping a hole into the lives of these kids, which will inevitably fuck them up for life, or that my leaving is just a blip, easily forgotten, and I'll soon be replaced in their lives just as I will be in the life of my ex. The second thought seems selfish and pathetic and unworthy, but I feel it all the same. So am I worthless, someone who abandons children that love them, or worse than worthless, totally forgettable? I think neither. You know, her, her kids are not your responsibility. And um, no, you're not forgettable. Um, I don't believe any of us are forgettable. And I think it's good that you're feeling these feelings. It's a, it's a nice change of pace from feeling numb and shut down. And you mentioned your codependency. I think that would be the thing to focus on because if we don't deal with our codependency, we'll never get a sense of ourselves. And our brain will always be driven by guilt and shame and shoulda, coulda, woulda. <clears throat> because... While codependency on the surface seems like, you know, we care too much about other people, it's it's actually a bit of a selfish uh, act because we really want to try to control those people. We're using them in a sense, and that doesn't mean that we don't love them, care about them, but there's kind of an objectification that takes place when codependency is is happening because we're not seeing them as we're seeing an image of them that we want to see and we're trying to work towards it thinking we can we can change them or we need to save them <clears throat> darkest secrets maybe it isn't all that deep or that dark but all of my anxieties have pretty much well convinced me that i am at heart a total coward it seems and by the way that's another way that our 
illnesses talk to us is in black and white thinking. Uh, never, always. When you find yourself telling yourself that, just know that that, that is not reality. It seems lucky that I can't figure out what exactly I want in life because knowing would greatly increase the chances of my chickening out of whatever it takes to achieve those things. And again, I think working on your codependency will help improve expanding your life instead of looking for somebody else to fill it and expand it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Truth be told, I'm incredibly horny but have few specific sexual fantasies. I think I've mostly let my partners determine what we do and how far we go. And I do find it exciting when we've pushed boundaries, but I'm not about to bring anything really radical to the table. Except, you know, putting my penis in or around their butthole. But that's a given. I think I need to do some thinking about what is sexy to me. This shouldn't be a difficult question. And that's one of the signs of of codependency or love addiction is we don't know what we want. We don't know what we like. We're so used to saying, who do I need to be to, you know, bring peace into this room or to make this person happy. And by the way, there is a big difference between around the butthole and in the butthole that it's like you know the difference between watching saving private ryan and joining the marines and yes what i'm saying is anal sex is boot camp and the butthole is the beach at normandy and i'm sure there's probably a hitler joke in there somewhere but i'm not going to go for it What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? My mom has, on a couple of occasions, mentioned what a, quote, bad mom she was. Usually, I've ignored it or made some noises of disagreement, but just once I'd like to, well, I'd like to agree. I mean, no, she wasn't a bad mom in many ways, but emotionally, she was a train wreck. She couldn't keep herself together enough to let me have emotions, too. In fact, she's always praised me for my ability to weather her moods. Stuffing emotions was fucking encouraged. I feel pride sometimes about how well I can stuff my feelings deep down and put on the Spock mask. But honestly, I don't think expressing this to her would do any good. It would just hurt her, and it wouldn't make me feel any better. But I think expressing that to somebody else would be helpful for you, either a therapist or a support group. What, if anything, do you wish for? To know what I want out of life, to know what would be fulfilling to me, to know who the fuck I am. That'd be a good t-shirt. Who the fuck am I? Big question mark. Have you shared these things with others in little bits and pieces to my friends? In the past, it's been helpful, but right now I'm too depressed for their encouragement. It just rings hollow, but I'm grateful to have people with whom I can share my thoughts. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. A little, I think. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just, even if I don't think I'm worth a damn, I happen to think you are worth a damn. More than a damn. God fucking damn it. Keep at it. The life thing. And don't give up. Oh wait, also this quote. I have a longing for life, and I go on living in spite of logic. Though I may not believe in the order of the universe, yet I love the sticky little leaves as they open in spring. I love the blue sky. I love some people whom one loves, you know, sometimes without knowing why. 
I love some great deeds done by men, though I have long ceased, perhaps, to have faith in them. Yet from old habit, one's heart prizes them. And that's from Dostoevsky's brothers, Karamat. I am so dumb. Karamazov. Any uh, suggestions to make the podcast better? No. I just discovered it, and I'm happy that it and you, Mr. Gilmartin, exists. That's sweet. I appreciate that. Thank you for that survey. You know, that's a really, really important topic, the codependency and shutting down emotionally. And a lot of times, uh, and I think this podcast can be guilty of it, is that so much more weight or attention is given to the dramatic uh, abuse. Um, but the neglect, the, the mixed messages, those, those fuck us up every bit as much and actually give us additional hurdles to healing and finding out who we are and what we want, setting boundaries and all that other good stuff. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Invisible Doormat. She writes, Last week, I was at work while I was finishing listening to episode 215 with Roxanne. Towards the end, you read a happy moment. Maybe it was awful some. In the survey, someone told the survey taker, just because you're small and quiet doesn't mean you aren't strong. This struck me right in the feelings. And I started crying ugly tears while sitting at someone else's computer trying to place one of my weekly orders. Awful because I hate crying, especially when someone will see me, but also so, so wonderful because I found my new mantra. Just because I'm small and quiet doesn't mean I'm not strong. I am strong. I love that one. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Shawnee Boy. She identifies as straight. She's in her 50s. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Um, My older female, uh, she writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My older female cousin broke into the bathroom when I was 10 to see me naked in the bath. She was 14. Uh, You ever been physically or emotionally abused? I prefer to use the word neglect. I know this from hearing my mother talk about it. I will start by saying I don't harbor any resentment towards my parents. My mother did not realize or understand what her actions were doing. My parents had a terrible relationship. My mother belittled my father and criticized his every action and spoke uh, out loud about it. They would fight in front of us, verbal exchanges. They would also fight in front of friends and other family. There were no secrets. The experience of growing up in a home like this had huge effects on me. I held everything in. When I was 21, my mother had a massive stroke. She survived but was left disabled. I spent the next 15 years visiting her regularly and trying to keep her spirits up. Each time I would leave her and go home, I would cry to myself. At age 19, I decided to see my own I decided on my own to see a therapist. I've had some little success, but it wasn't until five years ago when I, for the very first time, met a therapist that I really connected with. When I left Deborah's office the first time, my body was vibrating. I grew up in a home where I was never seen and everyone spoke disrespectfully to each other. 
I learned so much from doing therapy. I feel as though I was completely transformed. Any positive experiences with the abuser? I have cut off communication with abusive family members, and both of my parents are dead. Darkest thoughts. I don't have any dark, shameful thoughts these days. I do feel depressed at times, but I am resolved in my life. Darkest secrets. I'm attracted to young females age 16. I believe this stems from the fact that I was having sex at age 14 and masturbating at age 12 to porn magazines. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I only fantasize about being with young women, not kids, but 16 to 20 year olds. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? If my parent parents were around, I would tell them how damaging the way they were with one another was. What, if anything, do you wish for? That anything I've been able to share with others has been helpful to them in resolving any pain or suffering they may have experienced. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, in hopes that it will help them. When I was 14, I had a great uncle who was in his 80s, and he told me he saw a therapist. He was a very together guy and successful. He helped people all his life. I felt he planted a seed when he told me this and made it easy for me later to seek help on my own. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels good. It's nice to share, especially positive things. I am often referring people to the therapist I used to see. Recently, someone I referred contacted me and was very thankful. I felt so happy that she is finding therapy helpful. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Just gratitude for the place where the urge to help others comes from. I believe we as human beings have such huge potential inside us. When we feel gratitude and share, then in earnest, it's healing. It's kindness in a way. I am only passing on something someone passed to me. Thank you for that. Thank you. anybody that's that's taken the surveys. Oh, I forgot to mention, that's another way you can really help the podcast is go fill out the surveys. And I apologize. I'm way, way behind on the shame and secret surveys. I'm reading ones that were filled out over two years ago. And it's just the I do not have the bandwidth because they're so heavy um, to to read more than about 10 a week. So I apologize. Don't apologize. This is a happy moment filled out by I Love Pokemon Go. Uh, she identifies as a trans woman. And she writes, I came from a horrible childhood and I vowed that when I have kids, the cycle of abuse would stop. It did. I met an amazing partner and I did everything I could to make sure he was nothing like my scumbag father. I watched my kids, seven, five, and two, swimming happily in our backyard pool and realized I am raising well-adjusted, happy quirky and fun little humans. No abuse, no violence, no chaos. There's something so comforting and powerful about that. I'm not a perfect parent, but I stopped the cycle of abuse. Literally generations of it from both sides of my family. This is so awesome. That just, that's like a little Christmas present reading that. Any comments to make the podcast better? Keep talking about Herbert's butthole. <laughs> Herbert has been gone for two years, maybe longer. 
two and a half years. But his butthole lives on. I sometimes picture the, the ghost of Herbert. You know, I have pictures of the dogs that I used to have on a rotating digital frame in my living room. And when a picture of him or Ivy comes up, I always, I always talk to him. This is from the love survey filled out by Judy Jake. She writes, I love when I look in the mirror searching for the mess. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. It's, uh, he. I love when I look in the mirror searching for the mess of a man I think I am. But instead, just seeing myself looking back, and the thought of you're doing okay shoots through my head. Sometimes that is the best that we can hope for on a given day, is to just be okay. To just go, hey, I'm going to meet myself where I am. It's so hard to not shame ourselves. This is an email that I got from Holly, and she writes, Hey, babe, I can't believe how crazy we got last night. You said you wanted a copy of our naughty movie that we made, right? And while I uploaded it here for you to watch. I've been watching it all day and getting so turned on. I can't wait to hook up with you again, babe. This terrified me because I do not remember doing that last night, and I've got to assume that I am sleepwalking, and I don't know what... Naughty means jaywalking, but I did download the video, and uh, I think there might have been a virus in it because when I hit enter, sparks shot out of my computer and then smoke, and my screensaver is now a vagina. This is a shame and secret survey. Um, This is filled out by a woman who calls herself social anxiety makes me a bitch. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I I would classify it as chaotic. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. My parents were divorced my entire life, and despite my dad being an unemployed convicted felon, he still managed visitation rights to see me every other weekend. He lived with his wife, who had a full-time job, and he had plenty of alone time with me. That does not bode well. The thing that hurts the most is that I can't remember when it started, and I can't remember him actually touching me, but I know it happened because of the things I do remember in my hypersexuality at a very young age. I remember I was only three years old when I woke up in the middle of the night, walked into our living room, and began humping one of my dolls. I also tried to initiate what I thought was sex with several different cousins when I was between four and eight, and I still feel guilty. I have a vague memory of one of my older cousins trying to get me to lift up my skirt when she was staying over at my house. She would take me behind my bed and lay on top of me and kiss me. She was only three years older than me, and I hold no grudges against her because, like myself, I wonder what happened to her to make her want to do this. I remember my dad bought me clothes one time I was with him, and when we were alone, he sat down in a chair and told me to try on the clothes in front of him, saying, Why are you being shy? You can change. It's okay. I'm your daddy. I remember undressing, but I don't think I tried on the clothes. I don't remember what happened. 
There was another time when he urged me to lay over his lap on the couch, saying the same thing as the other time, come lay down with your daddy, and he would rub my back and butt. Again, I don't remember much else. I was terrified of him and never spoke to him unless I was asked a direct question. I feel ashamed and disgusted and really pissed off. I know what happened with my cousins was none of our faults, but I wish I could have been brave enough to tell someone. And to this day, after not seeing him for over a decade, I still haven't told anyone up till now. I unwillingly think of him and those moments every day of my life. You know, I understand your wish to have told someone, but if you grew up in an environment that was not emotionally safe, what kid is going to step forward? You know, the track record is that when you speak up about your feelings, you're, you're shot down. And <clears throat> it's so easy to play, you know, Monday morning quarterback and look back and say, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. But the real should is that your parents uh, shouldn't have done the things that they did to you. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. Like most kids, I was bullied a lot in school over my weight and shyness. I remember it starting as early as preschool. There were a group of girls who made fun of my weight and told me I couldn't play with them because of it. Growing up, there were constant loud and lasting loud and long-lasting arguments between several different adults in my family, including arguments between my mom and dad almost every week. It usually happened over the phone, but on the rare occasion they argued when he came to pick me up, in which I had to listen to him complain about her on our car ride. I would also have to listen to my parents having loud sex when I was a kid, and I would cover my ears and begin screaming, then feel repulsed when one of them came to comfort me. I did not want them near me. And then my mom and stepdad argued on occasion. Now that I'm in my 20s and unable to move out, I'm still fo forced to listen to their arguing. About being physically abused, my stepmom would deprive me of food, bring a scale into the kitchen uh, in front of my step-siblings and force me to weigh myself before I ate. Jesus Christ. My dad once asked her why she didn't leave any chicken nuggets for me, which resulted in a night-long argument about how my fat ass should have gotten up to get some when I made them. My younger stepbrother then consoled me, saying, don't listen to them. They do this all the time. Any positive experiences with the abusers? None at all. I don't remember any good times with my dad or my stepmom. Darkest thoughts? I sometimes think about violently killing people when I feel anxious around them. Darkest secrets. I've had sexual fantasies about my family members and even sniffed one of their panties when I was 10. It's one of my worst memories and I'm not sure why I did it. I feel like a disgusting piece of shit. You know, children and even adults do things out of curiosity, sometimes to not feel what they're feeling and... That is not something to beat yourself up about. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I get aroused thinking of incest and sexual abuse happening to someone else, especially involving women. It makes me feel like a piece of shit. I wish I could like straight vanilla sex like most women. Well, here's, here's a little something for you. Uh, I don't believe the average person 
gets their button pushed by straight vanilla sex. Certainly, there's a lot of people who do, but I've read 9,000 of these surveys. And let's see what number this one is. No, I don't have a number on this one, but just thousands and thousands of these surveys. And I would say about 5% of the sexual fantasies that people have, especially women, is vanilla sex. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to seriously injure my dad. There's nothing I can think of saying to him. What, if anything, do you wish for? A completely new life. If I had the money, I would move to a new state and change everything I can about my identity. And I think about this a lot. Well, you know, you don't have to move to change your life. You just have to set boundaries, cut toxic people out of your life, learn how to feel your feelings, find healthy ways of expressing them. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared none of this with anyone because uh, before because I'm scared of what, what might happen if I do. I've kept it to myself. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel slightly uncomfortable reliving those moments, but slightly better getting them out of my mind for once. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I can't think of anything. I just began listening a month ago, and the podcast is helping me deal with my shitty life and has opened up my mind to the possibility of seeing a psychologist. I even made an appointment with a doctor for my depression recently. Thank you for that. Oh, I think there's a lawnmower cutting cutting grass out there. Uh, this is, should I wait? I'm going to plow ahead. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself owner of a lonely fart. And he writes, I don't know how exactly to describe this feeling I get when I see strangers enjoying little things. It makes me almost want to cry, but not in a sad way. It's almost like I'm seeing someone have a little interaction with their inner child. I most often get it when I'm at the store. Yesterday it happened when I was at the pharmacy buying some seltzer water. Uh, I was waiting in line and saw a young woman pushing a cart. She paused in the candy aisle and I saw her looking at a bag of Sour Patch Kids. Instantly, I was awash in emotion. Seeing a solitary adult stranger contemplate getting some candy is this simple thing that makes me want to cry. She put the bag down and waved her hands as if to say, no sugar for me. Voyeuristically, watching that thought process in her was a roller coaster of nostalgic emotion for me. I get the same feeling when I'm checking out of the grocery store and I look at what other people are buying. There's something about seeing into someone's personal choices for food to enjoy or share with their family that kills me especially if they get something just for fun or just because it's a little guilty pleasure. There is a dark, perverse opposite to this feeling too, but only one thing triggers it, seeing people gamble, especially if I see someone buying lots of scratch cards. For some reason, it makes me so sad I can hardly bear it. That inner child's false hope of winning is the opposite of the calm, self-assured, but slightly embarrassed joy that comes from buying some childish candy to enjoy. Seeing someone indulge in a small guilty pleasure is a huge happy moment for me. Sometimes I sit on a bench near my local ice cream place and just watch the people come 
waiting for the solitary customers to come just because they wanted some ice cream for themselves, and I bask in the secondhand pleasure of simple, lonesome creature comforts. Oh man, do I love that. And I'm, I'm a little jealous of that because I'm in a place right now where I'm having trouble feeling the little things in life. And I think it's related to overplaying video games and being overstimulated. But uh, I'm glad you are in that place. And I've been in that place before. And I, I, I know I can get back to it. I, I hope I can get back to it. But anyway, if you're out there and you're struggling, you are, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.